Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. And in a very serendipitous sort of turn of events, we find ourselves in the first eight verses of chapter 12. Uh, We studied chapter 11 about a year ago when we studied through the eight miraculous signs of the book of John. And in uh, chapter 11 is the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and made that incredible statement, I am the resurrection and the life. So about a year ago, we studied that. And this morning, we come to John chapter 12. And in the first eight verses of that chapter, we find, really and truly, a Thanksgiving dinner. We're going to read it in a minute. Uh, But this week in my time of uh, preparation and prayer and just as I was going about doing things, I was thinking about how a year ago this last week is when the very first cases of COVID-19 were first detected in Wuhan, China. That happened on November 17th, so five days ago. And thinking back to Thanksgiving season last year, what a difference a year can make, right? And the thing I just kept coming back to again and again and again in my own thinking is how thankful I am to have God. I'm so thankful for a God who knows all things. And even from our limited horizon of our, what we know, we have no idea what 2021 will hold, <laughs> do we? Not even a clue. But we do know that God already knows all things. He's already there. And we can have full confidence and trust in him. And so as I was thinking about things this week, my heart just kept coming back to a heart of thanksgiving. And this morning, what I want us to do is as we prepare our hearts for the Thanksgiving holiday, our conversation this morning is going to be about what characterizes Christian thanksgiving. And what I mean by that is this. If you did a man-on-the-street poll and you asked 100 people in downtown Presque Isle, is it important and good to be thankful? What percentage of them would say yes? My guess is it would be somewhere around 100%. Nobody would say it's, it's not important to be thankful. Gratitude is a universally affirmed thing. So in what ways, when we talk about Thanksgiving as Christians, is Christian Thanksgiving unique and different from general gratitude, general Thanksgiving? I think it is. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And this morning, to help us do that, I want to study a portion of Scripture that will help us see and understand what characterizes a gratitude that is pleasing to our God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to quickly walk through the text, these first eight verses of John chapter 12. We'll unpack it a little bit as we go. And then I want to point out three characteristics of thanks that is honoring to God, and really that is unique to Christian thanksgiving. And then we'll close with a point of application, a challenge to go out and live what God has shown us in his word. And again, chapter 11 of John, which immediately precedes our text for this morning, contains the account of the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in front of many witnesses. Lazarus had been in the grave for so long, four days, that when they rolled the stone away from the tomb, there was a noticeable odor. He'd begun to rot in there so that it was stinky. And yet when Jesus called him forth to everyone's amazement, 
Lazarus came walking out. And he was not like a zombie figure with his flesh falling off his bones. He was whole. He was restored. He was as he should be. This was so striking and so undeniably a sign that it caused many to begin following Jesus who heretofore had been skeptical of his claims about himself. But to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the response of the people to this incredible sign only hardened their hearts into deeper levels of unbelief. So, because of their jealousy and because of their pride-darkened hearts, they grew even more resolved to get rid of Jesus. So as the Jewish holiday of Passover was approaching, the chief priests and the Pharisees thought it was likely that Jesus would come to Jerusalem as was the custom of all the people during the Passover. So we read in the final verse of chapter 11, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Then we pick up things in our text for this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. One of the interesting things to note here is that word therefore. What is that talking about? It says they were seeking to arrest him, and therefore Jesus went to Bethany. Here we might suffer from a lack of knowledge about uh, the geography of that region, but Bethany was a deliberate movement towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards danger here, and the therefore is, is uh, surprising in light of that. They're seeking to arrest him, therefore Jesus moves toward Jerusalem. We pick it up here in verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And obviously the context here is that this is a Thanksgiving dinner. Lazarus is there. Jesus is coming. This is a dinner to celebrate and thank Jesus for the amazing thing he'd done in restoring their brother Lazarus to them. Mary, therefore, verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Again, therefore, Mary here is responding to Jesus, probably speaking about the presence of Lazarus at the table in verse 2, is followed immediately by Mary, therefore. The, the indication is clear that this is a gesture of thanksgiving. A pound of pure nard would have been something about the size of a modern-day soda can. You might have that in your mind. Probably contained in some sort of a flask. And one of the things that's striking to me about this moment, we have chapter 12 right next to chapter 11. And the juxtaposition of those two scenes is so striking to my mind. In chapter 11, we have the tomb filled with death, it's dark, it's alone, it's filled with the scent of rotting flesh. And now chapter 12, we have a room full of light and people, there's food, Lazarus is alive, and filling the air is the scent of this lovely nard, ointment. 
the two things are so deliberately juxtaposed. One represents the death of separation from Jesus. The other is speaking, I think, up to the presence of Jesus, life, light. Just as the tomb had been filled with the smell of Lazarus's dead body, Mary now fills the room with an odor as sweet and pleasant as the resurrection and the life Jesus. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Uh, Judas apparently has a sharp sense when it came to determining the value of things. He sees this uh, pound of nard and he instantly translates that into, into its worth. He says this could have been sold for 300 denarii. But this man who so easily deduces the price and value of this commodity is somehow blind to the value and worth of Jesus. This is one of the enduring mysteries about Judas. He knows the value of the nard, but not the one to whom it is offered. Verse 6, He, that being Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we see that by invoking a concern for the poor when he makes his protest, Judas was really just dressing up his sinful passions and motives in their Sunday best. But really, he does ask a good question, doesn't he? Isn't it wasteful to just pour this out on the floor? Wouldn't it have been better to convert it into money and use it for ministry purposes? Isn't this a big waste? How does Jesus respond? Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want to come back to this last thing Jesus says, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. We'll come back to that at the end of the message. So I won't say too much about it right now, but what Jesus says in verse 7 can be a bit confusing. Commentators are all over the map and trying to interpret these words. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Clearly, he doesn't mean keep the nard for the day of his burial. That's been dumped out irretrievably on Jesus' feet and the floor. A parallel account in Mark is helpful in fleshing out what Jesus means. In In Mark 14, we read the same story. But Mark gives a fuller account of what Jesus says. He says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So when we bring Mark's rendering and John's together, I think we get this. Jesus is saying, Let her keep credit of having performed the last rites for me here and now against the day of my burial. Uh, Such an expense... Uh, such an incredible pouring out. By the way, this 300 denarii is basically equivalent to about a year's wages for a common laborer. So if you worked a, a year at a kind of a minimum wage kind of job, your whole year's wages, all of it accrued, would have been contained in this container. This is what she did. She took an entire year of labor, 
and poured it out on his feet. So think about doing your taxes, that number you fill in for the amount. That's just take that amount of money and dump it out on the ground. It's an incredible gesture in any age and in any culture. And such an expense would be appropriate and not unseemly at a funeral. But why shouldn't Jesus enjoy her act of devotion while he was still alive? This seems to be his question or his reasoning to answer Judas. And here we come to the three characteristics of Christian thanksgiving, those things which might differentiate it from more general expressions of gratitude. The first is this. Uh, What Mary demonstrates for us, exemplifies, is a thanksgiving that is sacrificial and costly. This is one of those things we have to see. Mary's gesture of thanksgiving towards Jesus was to pour out onto his feet, which in that culture was the most lowly, ignoble part of the human body. In that culture, in that day, your feet were just the lowliest, most gross part of you. (laughs) And then what she does is she takes her hair, which in that culture, in that day, for the woman, was the most honorable, the, the most... I don't know, the highest form, the highest part of your body. I don't even know a better way to say that. But basically, she is saying, I am going to wipe your feet with my hair. That's how, much, that's how amazing you are. That's how excellent you are. So Mary's thanks involved the pouring out of what, of what was likely her greatest earthly blessing and treasure. Don't miss this point. This is so key to understanding Christian thanksgiving. Uh, Years ago, while I was living in Lake City, Florida, back when I used to live a place where there were the things of of modern first world countries, (laughs) we had a Jiffy Lube. You guys in Arista County, you don't know what a Jiffy Lube is, but it's this amazing thing. You don't have to change your own oil. Did you know that, Arista County? It's true. There's a place you could just pull in, they do it for you, you leave in like 15 minutes. It's fantastic. I used to live in a place where there were Jiffy Lubes, and I would pull into the Jiffy Lube, at, and so you'd go into the waiting room, and you'd drink free, complimentary Jiffy Lube coffee, which tastes like they put oil in the coffee. But it's free, so I'm drinking it. And in the waiting room of the Jiffy Lube, while I'm waiting for my car to come out, it's all done, I'm watching TV. It, I remembered it was an episode of Bonanza. And the TV was about the size of a Pop-Tart, but we're all watching it. <laughs> And while I was watching, it went to commercial break. And I don't remember now what the commercial was for. I think it might have been for an insurance company or maybe a new medication. I don't honestly remember. But the tagline at the bottom of the screen throughout the commercial was this. There's nothing more valuable than your health. There's nothing more valuable than your health. Is that true? It's an interesting question, but when I saw it, I think it was the Holy Spirit within me that just kind of recoiled from that tagline, and I said to myself, that's not true. There's nothing more valuable than my health. I agree that one's health is valuable, but I disagree that there is nothing more valuable to us than our health. What about Jesus? What about the commands of the Bible? 
Between 2014 and 2016, it was the specter of another potential pandemic that loomed large in the headlines. Maybe in the midst of the COVID-19 scare, we have forgotten all about what happened in 2014. But beginning in that year, the Ebola virus reemerged in West Africa, and it would go on to claim over 11,000 lives before it was contained. It was on the news a lot. President Trump shut, the, shut travel from that country to our own. And as the epidemic spread, there was a lot of debate about whether or not we should restrict travel to that part of the world or encourage caregivers to go there. There were a lot of fears about this disease for which there was no cure. The fear was that it would break out of that region and spread around the globe as a pandemic of epic proportions. Westerners were trying desperately to get out before a full travel ban went into effect. But amazingly, there was one group of people trying to get in, Christian missionaries, some of whom got horribly ill. You had to be proud of the church in the midst of that episode. As the rest of the world fled from nations like, like Liberia, some were trying to get in. Christian missionaries would contract the disease. Some very nearly died. It may be true that these Jesus followers had nothing more valuable on this earth than their health. But like Mary, they broke the alabaster flask of their health on the streets of Monrovia and poured it out. And by doing so, they made it plain that Jesus was worth more to them than their health. I've often been struck by Philippians 1, 3 through 5, where Paul begins his letter to the Philippian Christians by telling them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Please note, Paul does not thank the Philippians for their partnership with him. Their partnership with him has caused him to thank God. Some people limit their celebration of thanksgiving to simply saying thank you for what they have received from God. And to a point that is good, it's proper, it's even necessary. But the costly, sacrificial thanks of Mary challenges us with the truth that we have been called to something much more than that. I think when I was a kid growing up, at some point every year in the church, around Thanksgiving, and by the way, this is a good practice. I am not criticizing this at all. A pastor or a youth leader or somebody or maybe my parents would ask us to go around and say the things that we were thankful for to God. And people from the floor would say things like, I'm, this time last year I didn't have a job. And now I have a job. I just am so thankful to God for providing for me that job. Or last year, you might remember, I didn't have a house, but this year I do. I'm so thankful for my house. I'm thankful for my health. Somebody would always say, I'm thankful that my grandchildren are coming into town for Thanksgiving or something like that. I'm grateful for family. Somebody at some point, trying to show that they were more spiritual than everyone else, would say, I'm thankful for my salvation, which of course we all are. We would go around and around and around the room saying all the things that we were thankful for. 
But here's something that Mary demonstrates for us. In God's eyes, it's not what we say about our blessings, but how we use them that is the true measure of our thanks to God. So I say yes. Thank God for your home. But know that God will be most pleased and honored when others thank him for your home because it's been open to them in friendship and hospitality. By all means, thank God for your friends. But do more than that. Give someone who is lonely and in need of it the gift of your friendship. It is good to thank God for your food, but it is better to feed the hungry. Thank God for your car, but use it to give somebody without one a ride. Thank God for your health, but for goodness sakes, what are we using it for? Thank God for your job, but use it to witness to your unbelieving co-workers and use your income to spread the work of the gospel and to give to the needy. Thank God for your family, but also put them first. Serve them selflessly. Let them see God in you through your sacrificial love for them. Be such a spouse or parent or son or daughter that your families would give thanks to God for you. King David said in 2 Samuel 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. The old saying is true, talk is cheap. So Christians don't just say thank you to God at Thanksgiving. We demonstrate our thanks by pouring out our blessings at his feet in humble service to others. This is what Mary, I think, demonstrates for us with her costly sacrificial gift. Mary did not thank God for her flask of nard. She thanked him with it. And that is a huge difference. My observation is that much of Thanksgiving at Christmas, at Thanksgiving time, boils down to this. Thanking God for our blessings, but falling short of thanking Him with them. And that's truly what Christian Thanksgiving is. We can compare this with the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. It says of him, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is somebody who might have recognized God as the source of his blessings, but failed to rise to Christian thanksgiving, which would have been using his blessings as a conduit to others who needed them. In Luke 14, 33, Jesus says this, So therefore, if any of you does not, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I think that essentially what Mary was saying to Jesus in this moment of extravagant pouring out of, again, what was likely her, most, her greatest earthly treasure was this, there is nothing I value more than you. I have no other God besides you. So whatever the thing is that we're thankful for to God this year, whatever it is, Rather than just saying thank you for that thing, I challenge you to ask yourself, how can I say thank you with it? This brings us to the second thing that is distinct about Christian thanksgiving, which is that the fragrance was not in the gift, but in the giving. In Philippians 4.18, it says this, I have received full payment and more. 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I want you to know this about God when it comes to thanksgiving. The sweet fragrance for him is not in the gift, but in your open-handed heart, in your giving, your cheerful giving. The fragrance is in the giving, not the gift. I think this is a very important thing to realize about our God. He looks beyond the things we do to the heart that motivates the doing of it. And this is a very important thing to know about our God. Because it makes the giving in the secret place worthwhile. It's not hidden from his view. But lastly, this is the third and the most important thing to know about God as it relates to Christian thanksgiving. Christian thanks focuses on the person of Jesus, not on what he has in his power to bestow. This is a point we make a lot, at least a lot in my pulpit ministry, perhaps even to the point where it gets overly repetitious. But I want us to contrast here what Mary does with Judas. Mary values Jesus as worth more than anything. Judas values Jesus at about 30 pieces of silver. For Judas, Jesus was a means to all kinds of earthly ends. But to Mary, Jesus was worth more than the whole earth. Judas wanted things from Jesus. Mary brought her things to Jesus and employed them worshipfully. Gratitude that is pleasing to God is not first a delight in the things God gives. True Christian gratitude is marked by delight in God as the giver of the gift. The basis of all our gratitude as Christians is first and foremost delight in God, Himself. God will not be honored in this season of thanksgiving if we, appreciate, if we express appreciation for all His many gifts, but we have no particular regard for Him as the giver. If we're not drawn to Him personally, if we're not committed to becoming like Him, uh, the story I always tell, and I told this, I think, about a year ago at around Thanksgiving time, uh, but to me, it's, it just is the best illustration I've ever arrived at to explain this concept. When I was in junior high, our, my, homes, my homeroom teacher, Mr. Blodgett, uh, had a secret Santa drawing. Remember this? <laughs> and <laughs> he passed out a hat, and we each pulled a name out of the hat, and I pulled out the name Jennifer Cahill. And my heart instantly sank into my stomach because Jennifer Cahill was beautiful. She was gorgeous. And I think there are two different kinds of guys in the world. There are guys who pull out the name Jennifer Cahill and, Je Cahill and they go, yes, Jennifer Cahill. And then there's me. No, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm just a cretin. Oh, my goodness. She deserves better than me. But I was a gamer. Mr. Blodgett had set the rules. He said you can only spend $5 on your gift. 
I grew up in Vermont, and in Vermont, all the locals down there know that you can get amazingly good stuff up by the ski resorts because out-of-state people with lots of money come in, they buy a condo, later they call from Connecticut to somebody, clean the place out, they clean it all out and take it to the thrift shops. You could get amazing things for $5 at the Killington thrift shop. So I went up there one time, and I walked in the door, and immediately right there in front of the door was a table, and on the table was one of those things, you've probably seen it, where you put a little candle out, the light from the candle goes up, it turns the wheel, and it had a little angel that danced around, and it dinged a little bell. But you've probably seen them made out of like chintzy stuff, like tinfoil, but this was made out of the good stuff. It was made in Germany. It was actually pretty heavy duty. Germans always make good stuff. But it was just so perfectly balanced that it just, it turned anyway. And I bought it for $5. And I took it home, I wrapped it up. The day came for our secret Santa. I brought it to school, I plunked it down. I opened my present. It was from George Kokanis, who gave me a Snickers bar. He did not spend $5. But I was happy nonetheless. It was perfect for me. George knew me. Okay. But I didn't care about my Snickers bar. I'm watching Jennifer Cahill. She opened it. First there was puzzlement. What is this? They started to assemble it on the desk. Mr. Blodgett broke all kinds of school rules. He lit the candle with his lighter right there in the classroom. The angel started moving around. Jennifer Cahill gasped. Oh, that is so cool. I heard her say it. Jessica Burleson, her best friend in the next desk over, said, that's the coolest gift in the whole class. I heard it. It is. Pretty soon, there was a throng of my classmates at the desk admiring this thing that was just working perfectly. Later, I found out from my, our mutual friend, Lindsay, that Jennifer Cahill took that home. They put it as the centerpiece at their table for Christmas that year for their family. Now, Later, after the names were revealed, who's your secret Santa, Jennifer Cahill found out that I was the one who had given that. So being a decent person, she came up to me and said, um, thanks for the thing. <laughs> and, and then turned, walked away. We proceeded to never talk to each other again, ever. Now, two things are abundantly clear to me as I look back on this incident, right? One she liked the gift. She did. I heard her say it. I heard her gasp of surprise. I heard her best friend Jessica Burleson. I know that she took that thing home and they put it at the center of their table for a whole Christmas season. She liked it. What didn't she like particularly? Yours truly. <laughs> Me. And I know that. How? Well, she just wasn't drawn to me as a person. She didn't seek me out. She didn't like to spend time with me. She never, never even said anything to me from that point on until now, which is okay, by the way. Every time I tell this story, I think people are like, boy, he's really bitter about it. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not true. She's a fine person. She's a good judge of character, to be honest. Uh, the, <laughs> but, but the truth is, she loved the gift... She just had no particular regard for the giver. So look at this thanksgiving from God's perspective. If we draw before him at this time of year and we say, God, thank you for all the blessings in my life. But then we go on to live in such a way 
that doesn't seek him out, doesn't spend time with him. We don't honor him in the ways that he would like to be honored. We don't do anything that demonstrates that we love him more than the gift. I'll tell you another story. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. Every Christmas year, every Christmas time, people in the church would give me as a pastor's kid little gifts. But usually, which is super nice, but usually the gifts were kind of designed more to say to my parents, we're spiritual than we're thinking we want to make a little kid's Christmas. Right? Like I'd get like a little puzzle that when you put it together said something spiritual and Christian-y which was, seemed more designed when I was a little kid to say to my parents, see, we're spiritual. <laughs> when I would have much rather had a Lego set or a toy dinosaur or something like that. I don't say that as a critique exactly. They were very thoughtful and kind, but sometimes I think it, in that weird place that I was in, that's what would happen. I think, though, that one of my least favorite Christmas traditions was when I'd have to sit down and write the thank you letters. My parents were religious zealots about thank you letters. Every year, my mom would keep detailed track of everything that everyone gave us, and I'd have to write a letter. Now, when I wrote the letter for the little puzzle thing, I would say, Dear whoever, <laughs> thanks for the great puzzle, Josh. Every year, though, my uncle, who I loved, I adored this guy. He was like my hero. He would send me the stupidest gifts on planet Earth like usually a, an old tired t-shirt or something. I don't know what he thought he was doing. But I loved him so much that when I sat down to write a that thank you letter for the t-shirt or whatever it was, I would write multiple pages. <laughs> Uncle Brad, you won't believe what's going on. Blah, blah, when are we going to see you again? Blah, 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 blah. And if you just read all those thank you letters in a row, you would have seen instantly who I loved. And it had nothing to do with the quality of the gift. Nothing. Period. I wrote a letter for the puzzle. I wrote a letter for the t-shirt. I loved them both about equally, but I loved the giver of the t-shirt much, much more. And it was easy to see that that was true. And so I think we can see, God certainly sees, which thanks is from the heart. Which thanks is motivated by a heart that desires him. So this Thanksgiving, that must be our focus as God's people. It must be our aim to delight ourselves in our God and to enjoy Him and to pursue Christ-likeness personally. And the good news is you can do that today regardless of your circumstances. Whether you are rich or poor, healthy or sick, loved or rejected, we can find reason to say thanks to God for His faithfulness, His constancy, his provision, his promises, and for our future hope of deliverance from this fallen world. If you are poor, you have an inheritance coming in glory. If you are sick and your body is wrecked, God has promised a new incorruptible one. I think we can let the good things in our life remind us of the God who is good. And we can let the bad things remind us that although in this world we will have trouble, our Lord has overcome the world. And even in these days of trouble, we have a God who will never leave us or forsake us. So let all our expressions of thanks this season be different 
from the hollow gratitude that finds delight only in things and circumstances. Because Christian gratitude is expressed to God in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they might be. And then we are running out of time, but I want to come back to this thought. Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I think what Jesus is saying here, let me read this passage out of Matthew 25. It's a passage you're no doubt familiar with, but maybe you've never thought of it in connection with this statement that Jesus is making. Again, Jesus says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And in Matthew 25, we read this, speaking about the last day when Jesus comes back. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Here's the truth the exciting truth this Thanksgiving. The one that could be anointed in person went from the earth long, long ago. But the one that can be served and pleased in a thousand ways is still here, represented in the least of these brothers and sisters. However, that also is only true for a short while. Mary sensed, I think, something of the short window to show Jesus her gratitude in the way that she did. Do you also sense that the days are short? Are you filled today with the urgency of the hour? There is a day coming when there will be no more poor. There will be no more decision when we will enter into eternity in light of the decisions we made. The days are coming to a close right now, even now, when you can, of your own free will and volition, choose Christ. Choose to serve Him and anoint Him, to bless Him in service to others, the least of these. That is coming to an end, and it will not extend into eternity. The days are short, these are the days of decision. The day is coming when Christ will return to divide humanity to the right and to the left, Mary's and Judas's. And the time is slipping away when you can break the alabaster flask of your earthly treasures and pour them out as an act of devotion to our King. I think that's the thing I take away most when I think about Mary this Thanksgiving. The days are short. The time is now. 
whatever the earthly treasures that you recognize as having come from God, you are being called as his people to thank him with those things and not to thank him for them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for serendipitously lining up these eight verses in this the week before Thanksgiving. Father, this is a week set set aside in the wisdom of our forefathers to recognize and celebrate the good things that you have blessed us with. And Father, we do thank you. Father, you have poured out blessings upon blessings on us individually and also us as a people. But Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help our thanks to be differentiated from the thanks of the surrounding culture in these three ways. Father, we know that for you, the fragrance is in the giving, not the gift. We may not have much to pour out, but it is our heart, desire to to say thank you with what you have given us. Father, we want to bring you a gift that is sacrificial and costly. Father, we want to serve others. We want to be the cause of other people's thanks to you. And Father, in all of it, in all of it, God, we want to demonstrate that it's you that we love. Father, we are grateful for the gifts. They remind us that you are good. We're thankful even in the absence of things because we know that you have promised us a sure and certain future, a lasting and an abiding hope. Father, in you we are turned to thanks just as naturally a song rises in a bird because we love you. You are our great treasure. Father, let that be true of our hearts this Thanksgiving. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.